0: Today on Ag News Daily.
1: So if we really um, take a, a close look at from the time pollen sheds to when that female's optimal for uh, pollination, that's just a matter of days. One day for collection.
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Hashtag Tech Tuesday here in the Ag News Daily podcast. Delaney Hall joined by Ashton and Ashton. I had to think about what day it was there for a second.
2: Yeah, I also had to think about that earlier when I was getting ready to record. I was thinking of who we were going to have on today and I freaked out a little bit because I wasn't sure if I had set up an interview and then I was like, oh, it's Tech Tuesday. I, I have an interview set up. So we're all good. So I got a little bit scared this morning. I have those moments too. We can't say what they're called. Oh, crap
0: moments because this is a G-rated podcast, PG-rated podcast, Ashton, but you can all use
2: your imagination
0: in replace it with the correct phrase.
2: Oh, absolutely. I guarantee some of the folks listening had some oh crap moments today as well. It's been a little bit of a rocky Tuesday. Yeah, it has, Um,
0: especially with folks gearing up to have holidays, hopefully with families, maybe Zoom holidays. I don't know how folks are doing it this year. Everybody's going to be a little different, I think as well as gearing up for a new administration, Ashton. But I don't want to talk about that quite yet. I actually want to talk about some other countries that are gearing up for continued issues. And that is, once again, China and Australia. They have been having ongoing trade disputes, really sparked in 2018 with the Huawei incident. And things have really escalated recently since then. The most recent escalation, Ashton, is now that China has officially blacklisted, quote, evil Australia's $67 billion coal industry. And so coal has now become the latest casualty in this trade war. As tensions continue to escalate, but Australia's coal exports to China are worth some $14 billion a year and have officially been blacklisted as of Saturday. Uh, There was a National Development Reform and Commission and Chinese, excuse me, that's a mouthful. There was a meeting between or for the National Development and Reform Commission. National Development Reform and Commission, there we go, and uh, Chinese power companies on Saturday were part of this meeting and have officially now blacklisted coal. But there are fears that iron ore exports may be next on Beijing's hit list in the wake of these tariffs. And we will continue to keep an eye on that, but uh, China definitely needs coal and iron ore and all these things to power the manufacturing that they have in their country. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, I suppose you could say for for China, excuse me, because they need this product. They're trying to obviously set an example with Australia, but there's the question now of where are they going to get these coal exports from to fill their gap?
2: Yeah, Delaney, that's a very good question. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I wasn't sure what had been going on here recently with China and Australia, because like you said, they've been kind of in a trade war situation for the past, I don't know, couple of months at least. But uh, I want to move on and talk about some things domestically. Specifically, I want to talk about the FDA approving a genomic alteration in domestic pigs that prevents them from producing a sugar that can cause allergic reactions in some people. And they, they being the, the FDA, approved this for food and human therapeutics, which is the, the first time something like this or, or an animal is being um, genetically alterated for, for food and human therapeutics. The intentional genomic alteration in the so-called gal-safe pigs is intended to eliminate alpha-gal sugar on the surface of pig cells people with the alpha-gal syndrome may have mild to severe allergic reactions to the sugar found in red meat. And this syndrome is also called red meat allergy and it can be triggered by bites from the Lone Star or a black leg tick and can be life-threatening. And most of the reported cases are among people living in the Southeast United States. And up until this point, the only genetically modified animal approved by the FDA for just human consumption not um, human therapeutics as well was the fast growing aqua advantage uh, salmon from aqua bounty so i thought this was very interesting and i'm very excited to see how this plays out but from my understanding the gal pigs are going to be sold online instead of in stores And the gal safe pigs could provide a source of porcine materials to produce human medical products that are free of alpha-gal sugar. And the products might be used in making a version of the blood thinning drug heparin or tissues or organs from transplants that are free of detectable alpha-gal sugar. So I was very just excited about that because not only will it be safe to consume, but it's also going to be safe in medicine. So I thought this was a very interesting development that they have going on and i definitely want to see where this goes
0: that's very interesting it's uh really cool what technology can do nowadays or really what developing technology is uh, doing for
2: us that's for sure certainly and it's great to talk about especially on tech tuesday it was a very timely news article i suppose It certainly was,
0: Ashton. Well, I want to switch tracks here just a little bit and talk a little bit less about technology and more about global production. We've seen some of the world's largest food companies and grocers urge commodity suppliers, including ADM, Bungie, Cargill, and Louis Dreyfus, kind of the big ABCDs, to stop trading soybeans associated with deforestation in the Cerrado region of Brazil which is a very biodiverse area, part of the rainforest area, and an area that the country has been continuing to force into deforestation deforestation, uh, to turn into farmable ground. We've seen Nestle, Unilever, McDonald's, Walmart, Tesco, and a few other countries, uh, consumer-driven companies really, demand in a letter that the traders refuse to trade soy from these deforested regions starting next year. It sounds like it's a little bit selfish on the front of the consumer-driven companies. They are trying to put together sustainability initiatives that show their folks that buy products, hey, we support area, we, we support environmentally conscious countries and companies. We support companies that are thinking about the future. And they're saying that by trading and doing business with, you know, some of those soy uh, businesses like Bungie and Cargill and others, they are not being responsible in turn that forces some of the blame to be pushed then on to some of these companies. And so they are asking uh, those folks not to trade with those areas anymore. I'm not sure how Louis Dreyfus, Cargill, and some of those other ones will react. They haven't released a statement yet to my knowledge But they're, you know, I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow. They're essentially asking those folks to cut out some of their business.
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm interested to see if later this week we don't see some of those companies stepping forward and and talking more about this situation. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Delaney, I just have one small update because I have been talking about the renewable volume obligation rules coming from the EPA. Yesterday, I reported that they expect to have something out, a proposal out by December 31st because they missed their November deadline. However, an official from the EPA says that he has not seen enough progress on a potential 2021 renewable fuel standard, renewable volume obligation rule to expect a final determination before the new year. Dallas Burkholder with the EPA's Office of Air and Regulation tells Brownfield Ag News that he saw a media report about the rule for biofuels blending coming out later this month. He says that it is possible as there is a proposal circulating for intergovernmental review, but not a final rule coming anytime soon. Holder says the proposed ethanol and biodiesel blending rule has been under review for several months now, but has not been released to the public yet. And of course, normally that renewable volume obligation rule come before a public hearing and a public comment period before they become final. So I just wanted to make our listeners aware of kind of what's going on behind the scenes, because I'm not sure that we will again see that proposal before December 31st. No, I have a hard time believing that we will see that, Ashton. Yeah, sounds sounds like the folks at EPA don't don't think so either. But I am all out of news for today. What about you, Delaney? I have just one other
0: uh, update—not update, story. Interesting story that I ran across today on Nebraska NPR. And this story, I just thought was interesting because it's something that I've never thought about before. And I don't really I I can't really say I can weigh in one way or the other just because I don't necessarily work in production agriculture every day of my life. But this story um, is talking about how women have had an increasing number of challenges as female farmers, not because of any political or social or whatever, but because of the way that equipment is designed And so this story goes on to talk about national, make sure I share it with you so we can share it on social media and otherwise or or in our newsletter. But this talks about a female farmer who farms in Rio, Illinois, who was interviewed for this article, saying that she loves farming. Uh, She's obviously one of the main farmers. Uh, as many women are now across the country. You know, Jennifer Campbell, I'm sure could weigh in on this article, uh, one of the hosts for Girls Talk Ag. But she said that a lot of the equipment that they use, especially their John Deere tractor, creates a lot of problems for her because of the way that equipment has been designed for men who have much stronger upper body strength. I know we always fight about this. I fight about this with my boyfriend that I'm stronger than him. I know that that's not the case. He has much stronger upper upper body strength than I do. And so this farmer that was interviewed, Eloise, says that she's been having a lot of issues with, you know, even simple things like switching out implements that requires a lot of body strength, even something as silly as, Getting a fuel tank filled up. You know, she's got a tractor that has the fuel tank located at the top of the tractor, which means she has to lift a heavy fuel tank over her head to reach it. And I just thought that was interesting, you know, that we, whether or not you agree with this article or not, have seen obviously for a long time, um, machinery has been geared towards more towards male farmers, I would say. So, I don't know. Interesting to think about. Um, John Deere did release a little comment in this article. A spokesman from John Deere said that the company emphasizes to commit to, quote, customer fit and ease of use. And they said, as the process began, the team uses digital models to account for the number or for a number of human factors, including height, weight, and reach. And as design progresses, real people are invited to operate the equipment and validate the designs. Those people are both men and women representing various body sizes and shapes, ages, and abilities to ensure confidence in the product design. So there's, you know, one aspect of it. Like I said, whether or not you agree or not, I just thought it was an interesting take on equipment that I've not heard before.
2: That is really interesting, Delaney. And when I think about women in agriculture, you know, not being, you know, quote unquote, I guess, fit for for working with this machinery that they're working with on a daily basis is not something that I had taken into account before. So it's certainly interesting to to hear about that.
0: It certainly is, Ashton. But another thing that's interesting to hear about is the markets. Should we tackle those today before we get to today's interview? Absolutely, Delaney. Let's hop into the markets. All right, Ashton, let's do it indeed. And we saw green again across the screen today. It seems that grains have factored through some news of lack of South American weather and are now processing that and turning it into some positivity. I actually just spoke with Eric Snodgrass. I believe we've had on the podcast. It's been quite some time. spoke with him this morning because i wanted to see a little bit more about how south american weather was doing and it sounds like from his weather models uh that brazil especially is going to be really pretty dry here moving into their harvest season come you know just a few weeks we could see folks hitting the fields there in south america so it seems that If all things line up correctly, you know, you never can really predict Mother Nature 100%. But his models are really indicating that we're going to see significant yield reductions in Brazil, especially in Brazil. And so, you know, we were talking about this, you know, even just earlier this week, analysts were originally thinking and USDA was originally thinking to see record crops down there in Brazil and Argentina. And it doesn't sound like that is going to be the case again weather dependent. But the markets are taking all of those factors into account. And it seems that now markets have their heads up a little higher, Ashton. So I will jump right into markets for today. I'll quit giving some commentary. Of course, y'all can listen to yesterday's episode if you want to hear Sean Hackett's take on it. But Kicking things off here first in the March corn contract up three quarters of a cent to close at 424 and three quarters. The December up just half a cent today to close at 412 and a quarter. In the swaving pits, the January contract up 14 and three quarters cent to close at 1184 and a quarter. The March up 14 and a quarter to close at 1188 and three quarters. We also higher today as the Chicago March contract added 3 and a quarter centicles at 599 and 3 quarters. the December up 2 to close at 606 even. In the livestock pits, we saw mixed trade today across the cattle complex as the February live cattle contract down 22 and a half close at $1.12.87 $1. and a half, the April down a quarter to close at 11712. $1. Feeder cattle higher on the day as the January contract added seven cents to close at one forty ten, the March up thirty to close at one forty ninety. And in Lean Hogs green across the screen again today, as the February contract added seventy seven and a half cents to close at sixty six forty five, the April up seventy five cents to close at sixty nine fifty seven and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three Dairy Milk Futures, January up twenty four cents today to close at sixteen thirty four, February up thirty nine to close at seventeen eighty two. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to our fantastic conversation
2: with Jason Cope of Power Pollen. For today's Tech Tuesday interview, we are talking to Jason Cope, who is the Chief Intellectual Property Officer and Co-Founder of PowerPollen. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
2: So to get things started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background in, I believe it's plant breeding, is what I read on your PowerPollen <laughs> website. I'm very interested to learn a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so I have actually been an inventor in agriculture for about 25 years now, and that's all to help the plant breeding process of producing better plants for food and feed. And uh, Power Pollen is a company that we started up about six years ago, co-founder Todd Cronin and myself, um, which is really uh, a new way to enhance plant breeding and produce agricultural output.
0: Okay, Jason, let's dive a little bit more into that, Uh, you know, producing agriculture, improving agricultural output. Give us a little bit more background on what that means for Power Pollen.
1: For Power Pollen, we took an approach where um, pollen is so important to reproductive biology that without pollination, of course, you don't have reproduction. So Power Pollen um, offers a breakthrough approach that's scalable to collect, preserve and apply pollen on demand. And what we're able to do with this technology then is to go out and collect pollen as it's actively shedding and store that pollen and hold it in storage until the time where the female is optimal for pollination. And then go out and uh, create that uh, pollination through our application systems and really maximize yield and use things like land, labor, and flexibility within process efficiencies to be more productive.
0: So, I mean, Jason, I feel like the answer of why pollen is so important is obvious, but what was it about pollen that made this the clear cut reason why you guys started your business?
1: You know, it's kind of a fun answer. Uh, Pollen has been really um, something that people have um, been driven to try to preserve for, if you look back at research publications for, 100 years now and those efforts have largely failed and so we knew that if we could invent a way to preserve pollen in a very scalable way that there's so many things that you can do with it and i already mentioned a few of those just with land utilization labor efficiencies and really process flexibility and That's exactly what we did. We figured out uh, and have a patent on methods to actually preserve that pollen that's really enabling both plant breeding opportunities as well as applications for farmers in the future to actually increase yield on hybrid plants.
2: So Jason, why don't you walk us through how you actually preserve that pollen? I watched the video on the Power Pollen website, and it's very interesting to see how you use, you know, manpower and machinery to collect the pollen and actually incorporate that into an operation. So can you just walk us through that process?
1: Certainly. So the first thing we had to figure out, aside from pollen preservation, is how to collect enough pollen to really do this at a large scale. So um, there are some videos that are available on YouTube uh, covering the power pollen process, as you mentioned. But uh, we've invented machinery that actually goes through and collects pollen as it's actively shedding. And with that process, we're able to harvest, um, in some cases, 100 liters of pollen a day, which is so far beyond what had been accomplished before in agriculture that it was an important step forward for us. Um, We actually preserve that pollen Um, then and we've invented a method that allows us to use refrigeration so that it's a very portable methodology um, and also that helps the scalability and we hold it in that preservation format uh, until those females are optimal for fertilization and then again we develop machinery to go out and actually apply this pollen so we basically move through the the field and create a concentrated cloud of pollen um, that's metered to the silks when they're ready to uh, to be fertilized and uh, complete uh, pollinating that field.
2: So, Jason, from the time a farmer, you know, puts seed in the ground to when they harvest, I would say they're quite busy. And so, I guess what my question is is, what does the timeline process look like from incorporating power pollen into an operation? And I, I guess, is it. Easy, easy to use. Like, is this something that a farmer is going to have to put, you know, a ton of effort into something that already takes them a lot of time to do?
1: You know, it's a good question, and I appreciate that. Um, We focused on making this process um, extremely easy to implement. And when I say that, I'd I'd liken it to um, herbicide applications or different treatments that farmers have done to their field at at various times in its uh, development. So if we really um, take a a close look at from the time pollen sheds to when that female's optimal for uh, pollination, that's just a matter of days, one day for collection and one day for that application. Um, the scaled type of approaches that we're working on, the machinery to accomplish this is also very similar to what's been done in industry for spraying type applications. So um, in the near future, you can imagine a farmer calling in an order for pollen, much like they would uh, for herbicide to be applied in that field being hit with that pollen application um, some days later when that female's ready
0: so, Jason, is the end goal with being able to preserve and use pollen like this, is it just higher germination rates? Is it eventually yield improvement? What is the reason farmers are now turning to using this technology?
1: There's actually a number of reasons. Um, of course, yield is always front and center. And um, one thing that not a lot of people realize is if you look at a farmer's field, that field is actually self-pollinating and self-pollination is never good for yield. And so when you bring in a separate pollen source like we do, so consider it um, different genetic background, and you bring it onto that hybrid, you're actually um, increasing yield through a process that's um, called heterosis. But it's the same as the hybrid effect of crossing two inbreds and getting a, a super plant, a hybrid out of it. You get a very similar effect by bringing in a different pollen source. So. Right there are farmers already getting a yield bump that um, they wouldn't have seen just with the self-pollination. There's also some other attributes where um, you can bring in traits on pollen. So normally when a farmer plants his seed, it's sort of in stone, so to speak, because they've already chosen, okay, I'm going to go for feed. Uh, uh, Yellow dent number two as an example say the, the grain industry, um, there's, there's a good opportunity for ethanol that occurs after that farmer has planted his seed. Now a farmer can bring in pollen with a trade for ethanol development, fertilize that field and completely change up with an in-season adjustment what the intention for the use of that seed is.
2: So Jason, this is my final question for you and I, I guess it's kind of two two wrapped in one, but you know, the first part being who are you serving? Where are your your facilities located? And the the second part of that is when you're doing the pollen collection and you're actually incorporating your technologies into farmers' operations, are Is your company the ones going out to these farms and doing this? Or is this something that the farmers can do themselves just with the technology that you provide?
1: So right now, we're actually mostly working with seed companies and the actual seed that they produce to sell to farmers. Uh, We have a um, relationship developed with Cortez that's been in the press here recently, um, as well as BASF, and we're working with quite a few other companies, uh, they intend to use this technology internally. So they would actually license that technology from our intellectual property and use it within their own fields. Um, For farmers, we see this technology coming to them within the next three to five years. And... um, Similar to the seed companies, farmers could do it themselves, but they could also license out because we see service providers having an opportunity to come in who are um, people who basically take pollen on order and deliver this pollen to the farmers.
0: Well, Jason, this has been really fascinating stuff to see. Just one final question for you before we let you go for today. If folks have questions about the process preserving pollen, I know you said you're working with Corteva directly to get that rolled out, hopefully for producers to use soon. If they've got questions, where can they go to find more information?
1: Well, a great source is our website. So look at uh, powerpollen.com. Um, I'd welcome people to reach out to me directly. You'll see on our website uh, links to some of our, our leaders at our company and um, also, I welcome people to go out and, and see what's been published about us to learn more uh, in terms of our process and uh, really appreciate the interest uh, that's been generated on the technology. We're excited about our our future and we're really anticipating doing work not only within corn, but within other other crops. We have great opportunities within uh, wheat and rice uh, in our future as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, that'll be interesting to see those new developments. Jason Cope of PowerPollen, thank you again for joining us today.
1: Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity, Delaney and Ashton, and uh, I wish you and your listeners a warm and safe holiday.
2: A big thank you again there to Jason Cope of Power Pollen for coming on the podcast today to talk technology. I always love having the technology conversations, especially when it comes to plant breeding, because it's not something I'm super familiar with and it's something that I am striving to learn more about. So I'm grateful for all of the technological advancements that our industry is going through. Absolutely, Ashton.
0: And, you know, I think Vance Crow is the one who put it to us this this way one time when we've had him on the podcast. But really, we learn a lot, too, when we have all these different interviews. And if we're not learning anything, then our listeners definitely aren't
2: certainly Delaney but we are really learning things every day other than Tech Tuesdays and so folks if you want to join us in our learning journey you can go onto our website at agnewsdaily.com to listen to any past and future episodes of the Ag News Daily podcast with that Delaney should we let the people go let's let them go